Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Pacific Hills. Why don't we all stand up and worship the Lord? starting the girls echo we know where the spirit of the lord is we know living in your freedom living in your freedom see your glory we 
you know where the Spirit of the Lord is? Yours, yours is the kingdom.
you are so great. And your love is so big. Lord, it just causes us to want to love you right back. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to see you today. Welcome. Why don't you turn and say hi to a couple people, and then you can have a seat. Our uh, junior high and high schoolers are up at, the, uh, at their winter camp, so uh, keep them in prayer as they come home today. It was great. They, they went up uh, Friday night, and it was rainy and muddy, and then they woke up Saturday morning to beautiful snow, and they're having a great time up there, so it's great, um, but keep them in prayer as they, as they drive down today as well. Um, in the bulletin, a few announcements. I'll call your attention to one. Uh, this Saturday, there's an adoption seminar um, for Christians to talk about how you can adopt children. And so the bulletin has all the information there and a number. It's a free seminar over in Anaheim. And so if that's something that you've even thought about or been praying about, an opportunity for you to get some more information on that. Um, also wanted to mention this Friday at Calvary Costa Mesa, there their high school has their uh, information night. So if you have kids going into high school or you're praying about sending them to school there at Calvary, um, Friday night at 6.30 they have an information night that you can check out. And if you have kids other ages and you're thinking about sending them there to Costa Mesa, there's an open house on a week from Thursday um, for that. And then the our ladies had their chocolate event a couple weeks ago and Next Sunday after third service, they're having a special thank you get together for all the people who volunteered and helped with that. So if you're one of the ladies who helped with that event, just remember next Sunday after third service in the fellowship hall, a little um, get together. And you might have noticed the fellowship hall is, we have the children's ministry in there today because of the weather. When we got here this morning, there was ice on the steps and and uh, so, but we're, you know, there, we only have so much parking, so I'm shooting for cramming everyone into here and just letting the kids have that room because we're having some extreme weather, thanks to Al Gore. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know, when you predict global warming, you just know God's going to do this. But, <laughs> thanks, Al. But, uh, so the kids are doing their general session in the fellowship hall, so we'll still we'll allow people to sit in the foyer if, if you need to sit somewhere other than it, here in the sanctuary, but that's what's going on with that. Um, consult your bulletin for all the other announcements. This Wednesday night, um, we're continuing in our family night, and I'm going to talk about soteriology or salvation, um, how, not just how to get saved, but what it all means, and so we'll probably spend a couple weeks talking about that. And uh, then this Wednesday night also, Michelle Nicely, our missionary from the Ukraine, is here on furlough. And so we're really excited to have her back home. And so I'll interview her and let her talk a little bit about uh, what God is doing over there in the ministry that she has with children over in, in Kiev. And so uh, you'll definitely want to come and have the chance to meet Michelle as well. 
You can consult the bulletin for all the other stuff, and at this time, if the ushers will come forward, we'll receive the offering. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 as we're continuing through the book of Revelation. And this morning we've come to the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Philadelphia. Now this isn't Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. This was a city there in present-day Turkey, which um, in those days they called Asia Minor. The city of Philadelphia there was a city that struggled for respect, much like the city of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, I think it's W.C. Fields has on his gravestone, wherever I am, it can't be as bad as Philadelphia or something like that. <laughs> but it was similar. The city of Philadelphia in Turkey was a strategic military location, but their main purpose was to protect other cities, to serve as a buffer. So if somebody was going to attack Ephesus, they would have to come to Philadelphia first. Um, it was also a city that was built in a place that was really lush. They had some of the greatest wine of those days came from the vineyards that were there in Philadelphia. But the, the bad thing about the city of Philadelphia was that it was sitting on an earthquake fault. 
And so no sooner would they build the city than a big earthquake would come and wipe it out and they'd have to start over. So most of the people didn't like living in the city. They lived kind of in the outskirts scattered around because living in the big buildings was a scary place to be. It was also a, an outpost for the Grecian Empire and the, for the culture of Greece. And so they, it was actually called Little Athens was the nickname for the city because um, it was there that they concentrated their study of the Greek language so that Greek would end up taking over Asia Minor. And so they were kind of a missionary city in a way, mission for the empire. It was named Philadelphia as a tribute from an emperor to his brother. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And so it was sort of an insignificant city overall, though. It had some good things about it, but it constantly struggled with its, with its, uh, with its self-esteem. And so we see that the church in Philadelphia also had those kinds of issues. Typical of someone who was from there would be also that they struggled with being insignificant and feeling that way. And if the city of Philadelphia felt insignificant, the church was even that much more so because um, they had a group of, they had a Jewish synagogue there, but, but the Jews had turned the Christians away. They, they no longer wanted Jewish Christians to be a part of the synagogue anymore. So that meant the Christians there in Philadelphia um, who were Jews had been turned away from all of their family celebrations, their bar mitzvahs, you know, everything that surrounded the community life of a minority of Jews. Now they were even a minority rejected by the, their minority and they really struggled. And it was a small church. The church continued. There were there are Christians there even today, but the church continued till like the 16th century or something. But since they were in a strategic location during the Crusades, it was important for the um, Muslims to fight over that territory, and ultimately they took it over and control it to this day. And the church pretty much died out as a result of that. Um, but here we see Jesus addressing this church and a couple of interesting things. This is one of the two letters that he doesn't say anything bad about them at all. Smyrna is the other one. Smyrna was suffering so bad it was like, you know, I, I think Jesus just didn't have the heart to criticize them. But Philadelphia, these guys were so crushed and feeling so insecure that for the same reason, I think Jesus doesn't even bother going there. He also doesn't say a whole lot of great things about them either. It's just, but he has an important message for them, and that's what we'll see as we go through it. Um, he starts out, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. Uh, the angel, as we've talked about each week, is probably the pastor, the leader of that church. The word just means messenger. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, He's identifying himself as God, basically, Jesus is. Holy, without fault, and true, meaning he's the real deal. And he says, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This isn't exactly a term that comes from the first chapter. Jesus is seen as the one who has the keys of death and hell, death and Hades, or death and what happens after death, 
he talks about having that access. But here he's talking about the keys of David, that is, the, the leadership over the kingdom that is going to be established, that as we read the best of, rest of the book of Revelation, it's focusing on what God is going to do to fulfill all the promises that he made in the Davidic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the others. But Jesus identifies himself as sitting on the throne of David, and here he is saying, I'm the one that has access, I'm the one that controls who gets in and who gets out. When I open a door, it's open. When I shut a door, it's shut. And so basically he is saying, what you are about to read about the future and what I am going to do, I'm the one that controls it. I'm the one that's in charge. And so, and it also ties in with what he is going to tell them. But when I open, it's open. When I shut, it's shut. Now he says, I know your works, like he says to everyone. I know what you're doing. And see, I want you to look at something. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. And then we'll break it right there for a minute. These Christians in Philadelphia knew what it was to have a door shut on them. And obviously the synagogue there shut the door on them. And that was hurtful. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to open a door for you, and those, those people who have rejected you, if they are ever going to come and worship God, they're going to do it with you. They're going to be forced to be with you. Everyone comes together on an equal basis. No one can play seniority. No one can, can be the uppity sort of partners in worship. If they're ever going to worship, they're going to have to sit down at your feet with you. Not that they were going to worship the Christians there in Philadelphia, but they would all worship together. They would all sit there and, and serve God together. So that was a pretty radical thing. And of course, he calls them the synagogue of Satan, as he does earlier. The people who claim to be the people of God, and yet they've rejected his Messiah. They've rejected his son. He goes, they aren't even the real Jews. The real Jews are the ones who accept their Messiah. And so he gives them that, but I want you to focus on verse 8, because I think this is critical. I think it's the heart of this letter, and I, and I think it's a message that God has for us as well. He is telling them that he has put before them an open door that nobody can shut. And then he tells them why. You have a little strength, and you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Now, he seems to be grasping at straws here in order to say something nice to them, in order to find a basis for the door that he is going to open. He doesn't say, you guys are so strong, and you are just spreading my word throughout the world, and my name is magnified. Through... There's nothing like that. He goes, you're not done yet. You have a little strength, but strength is strength. The Greek word dunamis, from which we get dynamite, it's like there's still some potential in you. There's still something that you are able to do. And hey, you've hung on to my word, 
There are many people who have greater strength than you, but they've gone past my word to go to other things. And he says, not only that, you have not denied my name. There were people who were very successful who were, rather than having God's word and who Jesus is at the center of their faith, they began to integrate other elements. We've seen it in all the other letters where it seems like, well, they push love aside in Ephesus in order to do good things. Other places where it's like, yeah, we let a little Balaam in, we let a little Jezebel in. We, you know, we needed to jazz up the faith a bit. Church attendance was waning, and so we found out that Jezebel can draw a crowd. We, we thought people were going, well, it's more fun down the street at the pagan temple, so you brought those elements in. But he's saying to Philadelphia, there aren't many of you there. You don't have a lot of strength, but you're still in my word, and it means something to you. And you are still believing in my name, and as a result... I have a door that's opened for you. Now, for these Christians, that must have sound, sounded almost like, yeah, right. Because every door that meant something to them had been closed by someone. They had been through disappointments. They lived in a city, and growing up in that city, every once in a while it shook and everything fell down. And people who lived ran out and lived outside of town and hoped to get a job in construction, rebuilding the city only to find out it was going to be destroyed again. They were a city who, if you grew up, you and you know, we live in California. We, we understand that to a degree. I mean, and, and really, there are people who won't come to California. I've had relatives who, you know, oh, come on out to California. The weather's great. And they see that, but they're afraid to come out here because of earthquakes. Now, those of us who grew up here, you know, we think of earthquakes as being an adventure. I, I taught my kids growing up that, that an earthquake was like a carnival ride. And so I would jump up as soon as I felt an earthquake. I would run in there and go, isn't this great? Come on, man, let's ride it. And, and so they would get excited. So you can tell somebody who's from California, when the earth starts to quake, they go, I don't know, 5.6, you think? <laughs> we start betting on where the epicenter is, you know. But for these people, they didn't have this kind of construction. And as a result, it was like your life is practically over. You would lose friends every time the earth shook. And then every time somebody wanted to attack any important place, your job was to try to slow them down. Oh, no, everybody knew Philadelphia wasn't going to win a battle, but your job was to slow them down so they could prepare their weapons in Ephesus to make the real defense. And so life had been kind of disappointing for them. The church wasn't doing well. And not only that, when you're in a church that isn't doing well, everyone in the church feels depressed. It's just that way. I mean, maybe you've been in a church that's just booming and you know the excitement of that. Maybe you've been in a church, though, that's been on its way downhill or a church that was just never going to make it in the first place. And what happens when things aren't going well in church, it brings out the worst in almost everyone. Critical people become more critical. Arrogant people become more arrogant. It's a miserable, awful place to be. And ultimately, you're embarrassed to invite people to come to church because you don't want them to see what's going on there. And that's a terrible thing where people are like, you know, um, so, hey, you know, you're a Christian, huh? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, love Jesus. Uh, where do you go to church? 
you know, well, I wouldn't necessarily recommend my church. Uh, <laughs> and you, you're like, uh, the, uh, you should check out Saddleback. You know, and then, you, then you'll see, that's how cool we really are, you know. But in Philadelphia, that was it. It's like, oh man, this is awful. Frustrated, not getting what they wanted, people learning that to have a dream is a setup for disaster. Now, we can all relate to this to one degree or another. Think about all the doors that you've had that have been slammed in your face over the years. Oh, maybe it started out the first time you fell in love and you just thought, this is the person for me. I bet they'll love me as much as I love them. And, you know, you extend yourself and if you're a girl, you tell your, friend, your girlfriends to go tell the guy that you like them. If you're a guy, you just maybe work up the nerve to say something. And, and yet, even when you reach out to somebody, you're ready to defend yourself. So you're, you're going to go, okay, I'm going to ask, are you doing anything Saturday night? And if they shut me down, I'm going to say, because I was going to suggest that maybe you ought to take a bath. <laughs> and, but, you know, you're like, okay, I'm pushing the door, but I'm going to be ready because I'm expecting it to get slammed in my face. But then as life goes on, you know, you're absolutely convinced that you're the dream of your life is to pitch for the Dodgers. And that's what you're going to do. And it's a great dream to have. And let's face it, somebody ends up pitching for the Dodgers. But, I mean, no kid dreams of pitching for, um, you know, a team. I won't name a team. I don't want to make anybody mad. But, you know, but it's like always a team that you grew up around. Well, as you get older, you get to be 40, 45, and it still hasn't happened. You're feeling like, my biggest dream, just I'm, a, I'm let down. But in, the, in between are a ton of doors that get closed, a ton of opportunities that excite you, and then they don't happen. Maybe you try to get involved in ministry, and that door gets slammed in your face. Maybe you just you think you find the right church, and you're just getting involved, and then it's like, no, we don't want you. Maybe it's the job, your dream job. You finally got that job, and it's like, oh, finally. My life is starting to come together. And then, boom, something slammed in your face, and now you're back at square one or even worse because now you're wounded from what didn't work out. And, you know, you made those investments, great investments. On the spreadsheet, it looks like I'm going to be independently wealthy. And then the economy crashes, and you're going, what in the world happened? I thought owning five houses was better than owning one. Turns out it's way worse. And, and the door is closed again. And let's face it, if, if we're honest, for most of us, there are a few exceptions. Some people just seem to walk right through, doors open for them. But for most of us, the story of our life is the story of doors being slammed in our face. And so we can understand the, that what Jesus is saying and why it's such a big deal if he says, I want you to understand, when I open a door, it stays open, nobody can shut it. When I, and I have a door that I'm opening for you. I have a plan for your life. There's something significant that I want to do in your life. And it wasn't any of those things where the door closed. 
See, our tendency is to look back in our lives and to obsess on doors that closed and probably to blame somebody for closing that door. We can go, oh man, if that counselor hadn't told me to go into that field, then things would be better. But I took a, wrong, a bad piece of advice and I ended up in a dead-end profession. Other people who would go, if it wasn't for those stinking bankers and the way that they abused the economy, loaning money to people they knew couldn't pay it back, this whole thing wouldn't have crashed. Or maybe you're thinking, you know, man, if Reagan had just served an eighth term, you know, we'd be fine. Or, you know, that stupid, you know, Obama, the stimulus package, it isn't stimulating me. How about you? And, and so we think, this is the problem. This is what closed the door. Or you blame that person that you were married to. We had it made, but they had to do this, and they wouldn't get with the program, and the door to a happy marriage was slammed in my face. Or maybe you're looking back at the person you fell in love with in seventh grade and saying, I should have chased that one. That was the basis for a perfect relationship. But she thought I was a creep. <laughs> or somebody told her I was a creep. <laughs> or somebody else got to her first, and now my life has just been ruined. If I had only had the opportunity, if somebody would just give me a chance. But everywhere I go, I walk through a door, and boom, it gets shut in my face. I don't get any opportunities. And, and that's who Jesus is talking to, people who have had doors slammed in their face, and he says, listen, you're not done yet. You have a little strength. You still have my word, and you're holding to that. And, and I see that you are the type of person who is not going to deny me. I am still the one that you're trusting in. You think I've let you down, but here's the deal. Every door that's ever been shut on you, even if it was shut by a person, it wasn't the door I had for you. Because when I open a door, nobody shuts it. When I shut a door, no one opens it. But not only that, there was a reason why that door was shut. Because that was not my door for you. That was not what I wanted for you. And, and I think it's so important for us to understand this when we look at our lives, because if we don't, we will spend our life blaming people for ruining our opportunities, believing that stupid people are the reason why we have a cruddy life. And that sells God so far short. You've never lost an opportunity that God ultimately had for you. Now, you go, but wait a minute. Some of those doors I shut myself because I didn't have faith or I blew it big time or whatever. God says, when I open a door, no one shuts it. I mean, you can't even shut your own door. All you can do is choose to go through his door or not. You can give up on his name. You can deny his word. You can use all of your strength pushing against doors that aren't the right doors. Definitely that will sell you short. But to understand this, that I should be thankful for every door that was ever shut in my face, because if the door can be shut, I want it to be shut, because that proves that it's not the door that God has for me. 
Now, what most of us try to do is find a way to get through the door somehow. Find a way to push it, blow it up, pick the lock. And so we as a bunch of our energy striving, which the Bible says the servant of the Lord must not strive, we're like, I'm intent on getting through this door. I remember years ago, it was the... uh, state wrestling championships back when they were up in Stockton. And I was up there and my friends, Jeff and Mary Roberts, Jeff was a wrestling coach and they used to work for us down at Calvary. And, and Mary taught for me for years. They were living up in Grass Valley and they had just got a new puppy. And this puppy was like a horse. It was this huge dog that, uh, uh, that was that didn't realize how big it was, didn't know its own strength. And it, it was funny because they hadn't clipped the tail yet on this dog, and, and so it would wag its tail and bar stools would fly across the room, <laughs> literally. It was hilarious. But we, I stayed at their house because I was speaking at Calvary Grass Valley that morning. But so I went with them and, and they said, oh, our new dog, Chewy, you'll get to meet him. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, great. And I mean, that dog, he bit me. I took him for a walk, and he's just pulling. And he was a puppy, but he was so strong, a Rottweiler. So, but what happened is when we got in the house, they were going, I think he's okay. You know, we left food in his bowl and water in there just for, you know, a couple nights. And we get in there, and the house was just, I mean, things were knocked everywhere. But the funniest thing is, they had kept his big bag of dog food in their closet in their kitchen. Chewy had eaten a hole in the drywall this big. He ate a hole all the way through the wall and ate as much dog food as he wanted. He ran that home. A lot of us were just like, we're going through life and we're going, life tastes like drywall. It tastes, tastes like gypsum, you know? Because instead of accepting a door as closed, that God's closed it, it wasn't his door, we decide to tunnel around it any way that we can. And, and that's why life is so tiring. That's why we get so drained. That's why we become so depressed. That's why we get so frustrated. There is nothing more frustrating than trying to push open a door that God hasn't opened. And we'll often spend all of our energy trying to make that happen. And there are some people who just don't get it. But what the Lord is saying here, Jesus is telling this church, you'll recognize my doors because they open. You don't have to do anything to make them open. You don't have to stick with that door long enough for it to open. Hey, I appreciate the kind of dedication that some people have. And if you're hearing from God to continue to push on something, by all means do it. Most of the time, that's a waste of energy, though. Most of the time, striving will not get you where God wants you to go. If anything, it'll only drain you of all your energy to where you're so desperate that you're going to go, you'll be laying there, and God's going to go, and open a door, and you go, could it be? (laughs) This is, I don't have it in me. If I get halfway through that door and it slams, I I don't know what I'm going to do. But somewhere with that little bit of strength you have left, you pass through that door and you find out this actually is real. This is actually what God had for me. And I'm so tired of pushing doors that get slammed in my face. I'm just wanting something to work. And he goes, 
It's going to work for you. I'm telling you. Now, many of you have been through a situation of great disappointment and, and great hurt and doors being slammed. And then finally, you got up one more time and you just go, I'm going to try one more door. And the door opened. And maybe you chose to let yourself love again. Maybe you chose to just offer to serve in some way. Maybe you tried one more job. Maybe you did one, you know, but you made that move and you go, this is almost too easy. I've been working so hard looking for a closed door and God just opened it. And that's the message that Jesus was giving to the church in Philadelphia. It was a message that said, don't give up. You have a little strength left. I'm not done with you. Your better years are ahead of you. Now, many people are still trying to live in the past, focusing on missed opportunities or trying to revive things that are already dead. Often, you know, you've worked at, a, at something past the point of wisdom, relationships that I should have given up on that friend a long time ago. Or, you know, there are people who just don't know when to quit. And a lot of times we go, well, that's really admirable to a point. At some point, everybody goes, uh, do you get it? This isn't going to happen anymore. Star Trek was canceled 30 years ago. <laughs> it's not Shatner's on the Priceline commercials, and that's cool, but it's not going to come back. Get, get rid of your fake ears and get on with your life, you know? And, and you know, for, for all of us, we have to decide, am I going to live my life in the past? Am I going to be moaning over missed opportunities? There are some people who don't know when to get out of a particular profession. And we call them faithful, and then we call them bankrupt. Because <laughs> they just don't know when to make an adjustment. Oh, I'm sure it's coming back. I'm sure it's coming back. And, you know, finally the last guy goes out, and you're going to be the one to turn the lights off. Because... You weren't willing to make a move, and you didn't recognize when a door was closed. And more than anything, and this is so important spiritually, you didn't realize that closed doors are the best things that ever happened to you because they eliminate something from your life that was never going to lead anywhere in the first place. See, when God opens a door, it's only to open other doors. God isn't just interested in a door. God is interested in a corridor. He is interested in taking us on a path. But if we're stuck somewhere, he needs us to understand a door will open. And sometimes it's a door has opened. It's just, I don't like that door. I don't want that opportunity. It's amazing. I talk to people every week who are desperate. And there's one thing that they all have in common when they're desperate. There are certain things that they just won't do in order to fix their problem because they don't think that that, that will fix their problem. And they might be right to a degree. I can't tell you how many people who are afraid that they're going to be homeless, but they won't give up their cable TV you know, or broadband internet. It's like, well, I mean, I can't do that. As soon as we begin to tell God what we won't do, he just goes, okay, well, tell me when you're through with those doors, and then we'll get around to the one I have for you. So much of this is about letting go, but it's all about hope. It's all about the recognition that God isn't done, 
that you may look at your life and feel like, I don't matter at all. I have zero significance. And he's saying, you don't understand. The doors I closed, I closed for a reason. Because they weren't your doors. Those weren't your opportunities. What I have for you is better than that. Don't you dare sit there and just act like, oh, nothing's going to work for me. I give up. He goes, no, your problem is you're pushing on the wrong doors. And you better thank me that I keep those doors from opening. Because if I gave you everything that you want, you would ruin your life just like you've ruined your past. But I have something for you. And when you get to the point where you are satisfied, where you are content, when you are just going, okay, God, whatever you want, if it's even to be where I am, if this is your open door for me, then I want to do my best here. Then God goes, great. I'm actually not done. But I'm glad we got that over with. I'm glad that you're not going to live your life bitter about closed doors. I'm glad you're not going to live your life blaming other people for where you are. I need you to understand you are right where I have you right now. Nothing has gone wrong. I have my hands on your life. And you're not finished, and there's a door that I have that's going to open for you, an opportunity that I have in mind for you that'll be perfect, that'll be better than anything you've ever lost, anything you've ever missed. Now he goes on, and after talking about the synagogue of Satan who had shut their door to these guys, he says in verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, because you didn't give up, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. At this point, they may have thought, what in the world is the hour of trial that's coming that's going to test the whole earth? But all they have to do is keep reading because by the time they get to chapter 6, they'll understand what he's talking about. Clearly a reference to what most of the book of Revelation talks about from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19 talking about that time of judgment that's coming on the earth that we call the Great Tribulation. So he says, if you guys hang in there, believe me, the worst time, you're not going to have to go through it. You won't face that. You can read the rest of Revelation and go, I won't be there. I won't be there. Ooh, that's terrible. I won't be there. And, it, and so understand that. Sometimes I shut a door. It's not a bad thing. How many people really want to live forever, probably most people, and most people don't want to, if you, if you took a, a vote for, okay, who, it's like the story about the Sunday school teacher that said, okay, everybody that wants to go to heaven, raise your hand, and everybody raised their hand except one little boy, and she goes, she goes, Joey, you, you didn't raise your hand, you don't want to go to heaven? He goes, oh, I do someday, I thought you were taking up a collection for people that want to go now. <laughs> but for these people in Philadelphia, he says, eventually, when the bad stuff starts happening, you're out of here. You don't have to be here. And, and the word there that says that I will keep you from the hour of trial, that word is the word ek, or the word that we use to say out of. He could have said, I'll keep you through the trial if they were going to be in the tribulation period. They could have said dia instead of ek. But he could have said, I'll keep you in the hour of trial, E-N. But he said, I'm going I'm to keep you out of that. 
So their first consolation is, as miserable as life is, when it gets really bad, you're not even going to be here. But then he goes on and says, and behold, I am coming quickly. I'm going to rescue you. You can look forward to that. So hold fast what you have. Hang on to what you have and what you know in order that no one may take your crown. Now, when we're talking about significance, a crown is a reward in eternity. And what Jesus is saying is, hang in there because you have rewards coming. Not only am I going to rescue you and take you to heaven so that you escape this ultimate test, you're going through your own test right now, and when you hang in there, there are ways in which you're going to be rewarded. In essence, what he's saying is, however many doors get closed here, I have the big door ready for you. And when that door opens up, whether it's because all the other doors killed you and you woke up in heaven, or whether you are taken up in the rapture of the church, either way, there you are in God's presence, and you will be rewarded because you hung in here now. So he's going, some of what you're doing doesn't make sense now, but it'll make sense later. So hang in there. And he, he elaborates, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. A pillar is the most important part of a building in those days. You'd build everything around these strong pillars. It was the strongest part. Everything else would lean in on it. And of course, the weight going from different directions as it was engineered would support each other. But the pillar is what, if you took the pillar out, the whole building would fall apart. That's how Samson brought down the house in his last act. Um, he says, you guys are going to be pillars in the house of God. You know, you might feel like you're not that important in the church now. There are people who are seen as being really important. And, and we even use the expression, people talk about, oh, he is the pillar of that organization. Or he is one of the pillars of the church. And what that means is they're the critical people, the most important people, the ones that do everything, hold everything together, provide the leadership. But God has this inverse principle that in heaven, things are going to be reversed. And the people who are significant here may be insignificant there. The last will be first, and the first will be last. So somebody like me, for instance, people would tend to think that I'm pretty important to our church. If I announce that I'm not going to be here next week, a lot of people won't come. People call every, you know, oh, is this Coverage Hill Pacific Hills? Is this Dave Rolfe's church? Well, no, it's not. But that's, that's the way people see it, because I'm up here taking up your time, and I'm sort of the face of the church, and that's scary, but, you know, <laughs> that's just the way it is. And people hear me on the radio, and then they come here, and they expect everybody to be dressed in mixed martial arts gear, because, you know, that's just where I'm at, and all, all bikers. But when it comes to heaven, I'm not going to be that important at all, I don't think. Because I have opportunities here to have people know who I am, to share the gospel with people every, every week, almost every day, and my voice is out there on the radio annoying people, making people go, 
sounds like Nicolas Cage, but, <laughs> but I get attention. I get people who, yeah, I get people who treat me terribly because of what I do, but I get so much more people who just want to bless me, people who are nice to me, who, I mean, I get to see people every week who come up and just go, because of what you taught this week, my whole life has changed. There's nothing, if I could, when I first became a Christian, if I thought I could touch one person like that, I'd be okay, I'd be done. I don't, I don't need anything else. But I get to do that a bunch, and it's crazy. I don't deserve that. So I get much more positive attention than I could ever deserve. As a result, that's my reward. Might as well enjoy it, because in heaven, rewards are a bit different than that. Now, there are people in our church that everyone knows. They're probably not really the pillars of the church. When we get to heaven, we will find out that there are actual pillars. There are people whose strength has been much more significant than the things that we give attention to. In fact, I'm convinced when we get to heaven, somebody will come up to you and they'll be very important. They'll be in charge of something. And and they will say, hey, I remember you from Pacific Hills. And you'll look at them and go, really? I never saw you speak or never saw you do anything. I don't, you know, and then maybe they'll go, well, oh, check this out. And they'll take a a donut and put it in front of their face. And Oh, yeah, I remember you. I just never saw this part of your face. And and it's going to turn out that that person was praying and significant things happened. That maybe on the day when the pastor felt like quitting, that person was praying for the pastor at that time. And, and it saved my life. And it kept me doing what I'm doing. And they didn't get any attention or reward on earth. And in heaven, they shine. And I'm absolutely convinced of this. That the greatest heroes in heaven, most of them are people that you would never recognize. Uh, most of them are people who were serving alone, would show up and do things that nobody knew about, would pray without needing an audience, pray without needing to gather other people to do it. It would just be like very simply dedicated to doing what God had called them to do. And getting to heaven, things are different. And there, the person who was just faithfully going through the door that God gave them, And even though that door wasn't a big spectacular door, maybe they spent their life crawling through God's doggy door and then they get to heaven and like these people from Philadelphia, he goes, hey, you had to live in Philadelphia, but in heaven, you're something special. You're a pillar, as he says, of the the temple of my God and you won't go out anymore. Now, that's not referring to somebody who's tired of dating. Um, That's it. I'm not going to go out anymore. It's an allusion probably to the fact that they always had to flee the city when there was an earthquake or a war. And he goes, when you get to heaven, you get to stay. You can settle in finally. You're never going to be evicted. You're never going to have a reason to need to move anymore. All the things that, all the doors that were shut for you on the earth, they're open for you forever. And he said, and I will write on that person the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. What the name 
for them referred to everything that the person was, their character, everything. And what he is saying is, I'm going to give you this secret pet name. Now, people with various relationships have sometimes nicknames for each other, and sometimes they're terms of endearment. What he is saying is, and I know you're laughing about yours. Um, <laughs> one time somebody asked Ann, we were somewhere speaking, and, and uh, they said, oh, what's your, what's your term of endearment for Dave? And she said, fart face. I mean, <laughs> she had never called me that before, but that was 20 years ago, and people still think that somehow when we're snuggling up by the fire that that's what she calls me. But sorry for that picture. <laughs> Didn't say it first service, won't say it third. But, <laughs> but what, what Jesus is saying here is there is going to be this special intimate connection that you have with God, that you have with me and us with you. You'll know me the way I know you. Basically, he is telling these people, if you hang in there and you are satisfied with taking the doors that God opens and rejecting the ones that anybody else closes as being not of him, you stay faithful and you are going to have an incredibly special personal relationship with me for eternity. That it won't just be like you're one of the crowd. You, you might feel like that while you're alive. And living in Philadelphia and being in a church that's struggling and you're really nothing special in that church. Nobody ever called you a pillar of that church. But he says, when you get to my home, when you finally pass through that ultimate door that I have for you at the end of the corridor of your life, there's going to be this special connection that we have. There's going to be an, a relationship of intimacy that we have personally that will make you the most important person that there is in heaven to me. And God has that capacity. Just like there are certain great people that have the ability to make everyone feel special. And, you know, it's great if you're that kind of a person. Billy Graham is that way. If you ever, you know, have had the chance to see him one-on-one -on -one with someone, you feel like you're the only person in the world when he talks to you. It's just amazing how he can do that with you. And in heaven, that's what our Lord does with everyone who gets there. And at that point, you're not going to care what anybody thinks of you. You're not going to be saying, I hope that girl that refused to date me sees me now with my crowns, with my rewards. It's not about that at all. We get to heaven all we care about is pleasing the only one that we ever should have cared about pleasing in the first place, our Lord. And we have this special connection with him. And that's what he promises to the people who will accept the reality that when doors are closed, his hand is behind that. And when doors are open, they cannot be closed if he opens them. And if we follow through the corridor of his doors, we end up in a place of special intimacy with our God. And he goes, you know what? There's no reason for you to feel like you don't matter. There's no reason for you to feel like, oh, if I could only do this or have this or find this opportunity. You settle for the doors that he gives you 
And it'll turn out that's the path you wanted to be on in the first place. That's where it leads. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. Some of us are, there's a few people here that probably have never felt like doors have been closed on them. But most of us know what it is to be disappointed. To have our plans not go our way. But God, please help us to know that our plans went your way. Everything that's happened in our life is to bring us to where we are right now. And as your hand is on us, so even if it feels like there's no hope, even if we just have a little strength, help us to believe that you have a door that you intend to open for us, that you're not finished, and that ultimately your door leads to our glorification, satisfaction, and a connection with you that will make whatever anybody thought of us down here be nothing. And we thank you for your promise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If you're here today and you think pretty much that you've got it all together, you're on top of the world, basically the only thing that's ever gone wrong in your life is because other people are idiots. And if they'd let you run the world, the world would be a great place. Um, if that's you, then you weren't ready for this message. But if you're here and you've become really discouraged by closed doors, then God wants to tell you right now that the, door, the right door is either open right now or he is going to open it at the right time. We need to walk in that hope if you're here today and you've never even come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, all doors have seemed to lead you nowhere. Everything you've tried didn't work. And there's never been a reason for you to believe in anything beyond where you are right now. There is one door that's open to you. In fact, Jesus, as we'll see next week, is standing at that door and knocking. And he's inviting you to come in. You can start your life over today because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, dying for your sins and giving you an opportunity for a fresh start. And, you know, you may be worried about the doors for your job or relationships or your health or other things, but if you don't know Jesus, the only door that matters to you is the door that leads to eternal life. And so there'll be people down here in the front who would love to pray with you, and you can just come down and tell them, I think I need to go through that door. And they can lead you through it. And then you're going to find out you are in a corridor that has an amazing assortment of doors. Some of them are locked and you're glad they are. Some of them will be open and you'll walk through them and nobody can stop you. Because God will do amazing things in your life, but it starts by getting right with him. So if that's you and you're not there, please, this morning, come down and Give your life to Jesus. Just pray and accept him and walk through that door. And then the great thing is, this week it'll be all about, where's the next door? What do you want to do next? What more are you going to do in my life? For the rest of us who've already come through that door, maybe you've become discouraged. But let's live life thanking him for doors that have closed, blessing him for doors that have opened, 
and looking forward to what door he is going to open for us this week as he's working in our lives. God bless. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. All will see how great.